Okay. Everybody ready? Okay, so I'm Blake Fogel. I run uh, two family offices and have about 20 operating real estate companies. But nonetheless, let's have all of our uh, speakers introduce themselves and we'll get going. Should we go from left to right? Hello. This is Purvesh Thakkar. I'm CEO of Thakkar Developers and uh, Principal for Pasma Investment Fund. We hold about a billion dollars worth of projected projects in North Dallas, Texas region. Includes mixed use and multifamily primarily. So that's our expertise. And uh, we'll be talking more further down. Thank you. Uh, good morning. My name is David Greer. I'm the Chief Investment Officer for Moss & Associates. We're a general contractor based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. It's a special time to be here uh, for Moss. It's our backyard and uh, the company was started 15 years ago in Fort Lauderdale. Uh, we've got offices uh, in West Palm, Fort Lauderdale, Miami, Tampa, Orlando, Dallas, and Hawaii. And then also run the Moss family office. My name is uh, Dr. Parat Sangani. I represent Angkor Enterprises, real estate company, and uh, Sangani Barber family office. Uh, my name is Sheetal Jaitley. Um, I'm the CEO of a company called Tribal Skill, where we build digital products for large enterprises. Um, the second thing we do is transform their teams, and the third thing we do is help them find ways to engage and do joint ventures with startups. Erwin Boris, Chief Investment Officer, Heritage Capital Group. We're a third-gen real estate family office. Made our money in real estate, and that's what we continually invest in, along with other institutional capital and other family offices. Great. So, do we all raise money? We do. <laughs> okay. So why don't we walk through this? I think this is what everybody's interested in. Could you guys each give an example of how you like to structure deals? Are they JVs? Are they club deals? Are they with other families? Are they more in institutional? What's it look like? What's the process? Let's take a couple minutes just outlining it and then we'll drill down on everybody's magic formula. Well, I'll start as uh, I'm the first one. So, uh, primarily we structure the deals to create win-win. It may range anywhere from being a debt partner, equity partner at LP level, GP level, or joint venture or co-GP options. Uh, each of them comes with a value at the same time, expected contribution from both sides. So if somebody is willing to, or intending to participate with us as co-GP, there are certain requirements and certain opportunity that they need to contribute and we contribute together. So primarily we play at every level and we are open to discuss any options on the table. We're flexible that way. Uh, so, kind of a, a unique process for Moss, uh, we see a lot of different projects come to the company that are looking to be constructed in our, the markets that we have offices. And sometimes the developer and owners over the last several years have asked us if we'd participate or co-invest in the capital stack. And we haven't traditionally done that. Um, and we did it probably five years ago, but I would say it was on a more undisciplined approach. Uh, with mixed results. So two years ago, we got more serious about it. We put an investment committee together. 
we created the family office and we started looking at ways that we could co-invest. So we've done that successfully the last couple years, both in the technology side for construction technology that makes us more efficient uh, in, in the process of construction and also on uh, joint ventures with uh, owners and developers. With your construction company, question, does your owner developers, do they ever ask you to post the bonds and do the, com the completion guarantees and what have you? They do. Uh, so we'll take the completion guarantee on the construction portion uh, but not developer uh, risk. So if there's a roadway or something that needs to be taken care of in a project, we're not going to take that risk, but we will provide a completion guarantee for construction. Wonderful. So we raise money by saying we don't need your money. And that's probably the best way to raise money. But it's just not saying that you don't need your money. We are in a very unique situation where Sangani Barber family office always has money to close a deal. So when we engage into a deal, we usually do not have to worry about raising the money at that point. And then we syndicate it depending upon the circumstances, whether we'll use our own money as I just talked about, or high net worth individuals. We have about 700 high net worth individuals who have invested in our deal basis uh, over the past few years. We have institutionals, RIAs, family offices, which is what we are expanding a little more through this, this forum. And obviously, when EB-5 was doing very well, we also had dipped into EB-5. So before I hand over the mic, just remember one thing. Every dog has a day. And the institutions, when, they are, when the market is like this, there is so much money out there that everybody is chasing deals right now. And there is plenty of rampant amount of money out there. But when the market turns down, the same institutions which are chasing you today will know where to be found. It's a herd mentality, right? If one institution goes, stops, pencils down, everybody else is going to do the same thing. Those times, you really need to count on your, if you want to stay in the equity-raised business, you need to count on your high net worth and your friends and family. So do not dump anybody anywhere during this process. Everybody is going to be useful at certain times. And then we have been able to manage for the last 20 years con continuous flow of uh, raising money by using this principle. Um, our formula is... Uh is, is unique in the way that we always want to help find the diamond in the rough. And the way we do that is because we work with large enterprises um, in helping them solve what their digital problems are and they're very slow to innovate, they're monolithic old organizations. Once we identify those problems and we find areas of opportunity, we put a call out for startups to actually say, hey, come and solve these problems. A, the large organization loves it because it's a problem they know they can't solve themselves. B, you find an entrepreneur and a great team that is actually working on solving this large problem. We then make that conduit together as having that corporation actually be the lead investor. We also ourselves have become lead investors in, in, in putting together a deal. And then from there we go out and find out we're gonna be the best strategic 
partners for that organization um, to, to be fruitful. And it's a great way for us not knocking on doors to go get money, but the other way around where people are fighting to get into deals because they know there's a large partner at the table, there's us at the table who are investing to help build the product um, and actually are solving a need for, for a large client that's already out there. We've partnered with institutional capital as well as family offices, and we look for people who have a like-minded investment vision, as well as people who are looking for a little in advance tax planning. You know, we've done deals with eight ticks, 10 ticks, 12 ticks. So we give our investors the ability to either go on to the next investment with us or go their own way, but still have you know, their, their tax strategy in play. Uh, and again, it's, it's like-minded investors. It's people that we spend a lot of time talking to, some people we've been doing deals with for six or eight or ten years. And so it, it, it's very important to know who you're investing with, they're your partners, knowing that you're of like-mindedness and knowing that everybody has certain strengths and weaknesses and really seeing how you can play off each other to make the investment work. Okay, so let me ask you guys. My business I have two main businesses. One, it's my uh, shopping center business. I have about 10 million square feet throughout the U.S. and 51 markets and 37 states, I think. I don't know. And then I have my high-end business, which is more development and casinos and construction and all those kinds of things. Um, is it kind of weird asking people for money? I ask because Usually when people see our deals, they say, why are you asking me for money? You guys are kings. What is it? So, uh, we get that many times. We have 4,000 plus clients in our tax business. We do tax efficient investments for our family offices and doctors and many high net worth individuals. So important thing is they ask us, why do you need money or why are you looking for raising investment? You already are such a big corporation with 22 businesses. So I tell them, it's very simple, I don't ask for money. Technically, the way we started our family office was we did our own projects and clients started coming and asking us, we would like to be partnered into your business. We would like to be taking part into real estate. If you do the right thing, you do the right projects, which have good value and good location and generating win for yourself, investors look and sort of, uh, they seek you out. So technically speaking, when they seek you out, you have to have something to present to them. And uh, other approach that I have seen is, if one family or one family office has mastered certain art of generating revenue and creating wealth, automatically when you created that process, if you want to exponentially grow, that is another time you can bring investors in. So we live our skin in the game minimally 10% equity is ours, and then we allow others to participate so that growth becomes five times and faster and larger. That is the whole vision. Reason we ask for money is we would like to grow in more pace and more areas of development. So that way we can expand and share our knowledge and our ability to generate wealth for everyone. Let me also ask everybody to interject in that. What's everybody's hold periods and things like that? Does it, because this comes into if we're long-term holders or if we're hitting hurdles, if we're working with institutions, they have their own hurdles. Uh, depends, on, depends on the asset class. We primarily like to create three to five year hold period in most of our assets and developments. Yes, I, want, I can answer that really two ways. So you ask about raising capital. Um, Altogether. I just forgot the second part. 
Okay, so I think, you know, it's, it's a natural progression of the conversation as you have friends and other family offices that you interact with, that they ask what you're up to, what projects are you seeing in the pipeline, are you investing in any of those projects? And we say yes, then they're always asking, is there a co-invest opportunity for us? And you know, I saw an example today on the board, uh, Greg uh, showed a West Palm projects, 376 units in an opportunity zone. So that checked the box for me because we've got a capital gains uh, liability this year that I'll talk to him about that project. Maybe we get an opportunity to construct it. So there's a number of different ways of doing it. Uh, we're focusing really on multifamily ground up development in the major markets that we're in. And a whole period typically for us and the family offices we're talking to is five years. And is it capital gains because you have to return the money to other people and not want a 1031? Or is it mainly because of the construction business? No, it's not the construction business. On the family office side, uh, we bought a piece of land in Flagler Village and Fort Lauderdale. It ended up selling, created a capital gain. So we need to figure out what to do. We could have 1031 exchanged it. Uh, but we're going to explore the Opportunity Zone. Fair enough. Listen, if Blackstone doesn't have a problem asking for money, who am I to worry about that? So, putting the humor side aside, there is no, there is no reason one should be afraid to ask for money. But like anything else, you better have a good reason. What, what differentiator do you have when you go to somebody asking for money or co-investing or whatever fancy word you want to use, whether you use Purvish, I know very well, they have a great opportunities for tax plannings and then reducing your tax exposures. Some people do it with education. Look at what Richard is doing. He's providing significant amount of education to people and then say, okay, you can now take each, which, whichever route you want to go. People like us, we play like a role model. We say, look, I'm a physician. And look, from physicians who are getting every single day their income is going down, we have found a way to stabilize our income. Come join me. Let me show you how I did it. And they relate to it very quickly. So as long as you find a differentiator that is different from the next door guy who is asking for money, I think it's very difficult not to win in this situation. So the bottom line is, don't be ashamed, don't be worried, just find a typical differentiator, differentiating point that you can carry as a badge on your shoulder. And my partner always calls it as an elevator pitch. So I have two questions for you on that. Do you guys just buy cash flow or do you develop? So it depends on what color of the sky that day is. Um, right now, the, the market is in such a situation that you have to be very careful where you invest the money. To cut the story short, today we are investing cash flow for hospitality. We'll do only value add in hospitality and we will only do primarily, not only, there are still few pockets that are left for multifamily value add, but there is a huge potential for multifamily development deals in a particular situation, particular locations, and with HUD financing, etc. The, the mantra behind it, when I meant by color of the sky, always think, 
is the replacement cost higher than the acquisition cost? And the answer is very simple. If the acquisition cost is lesser than the replacement cost, you know what to do. If the replacement cost is lesser than the acquisition, you know what to do. And that's where we believe multifamily is, where development is far less expensive than acquisition. We believe that in hospitality, it is acquisition is far less expensive than, than building it, except some circumstances. We have a project going on right outside Braves Stadium in Atlanta. I'll develop uh, any project outside $2.5 billion brand new development all day long. So there are some outliers there, but always look at the color of the sky and then decide what you want to do. Thank you. Sure. Um, our strategy, I'll give you guys an example. Uh, we went to eight of our large financial institution um, customers, found out what their problems were, put a call out for startups, had a company that came up called Every Financial, which it's a challenger bank, a digital-only bank that they were all struggling to do. Had some of them invest, um, had some very strategic other partners invest. One of the investors sat on the board of another company, software company called Wave Accounting. Within six months of building that challenger bank, um, Wave Accounting acquired that asset. We got a bunch of stock in Wave Accounting and just a couple of months ago, um, about five months ago, and within less than a year of us even creating the startup, H&R um, Block bought Wave Accounting for $600 million. And so to answer your question, there could be really quick returns. We got other ones that are obviously growing concerns and, and, and growing interest um, that are doing really well that came out of that same cohort that are still working with Royal Bank of Canada and Equifax, so on and so forth in the AI space. So um, what we like to do is actually take a look at which startup with the right institution partnership um, is going to actually start taking off, or should we kill it right away? Thank you. On hold period, you know, generically, we always look at a five-year hold, and that's you know. But there's no shame in taking early profits, and there there are assets we've held for generations. So it, it depends, because you can't always replace the cash flow stream, and so there should be no hurry to sell, especially at this point of the cycle, because you have to find something to exchange into. And, and given where we are, I think the cash flow is a little more important than betting the farm on the back end of the deal. Okay, so we're going to do the lightning round. Okay? How long does it take for you to raise X amount of money, figure out a deal structure, valuation with whoever it is you're partnering? In general. In general, it'll be 30 days to evaluate all the numbers and deal structure. Primary time goes into managing control and how other terms of the contract are going to be. Sharing the numbers is not a big deal, but ideally 30 to 90 days we can get everything squared up. And are we finding, are you guys negotiating with three or four different people at a time, or is usually first guy in the door the guy that wants to close? Uh, we would like to have ideal minds meet, so marriages are between the minds and hearts, rather than just take the first guy in the door. I would like to have that. So evaluation, uh, 30 to 45 days, provided the developer has the, the PPM in place or the, whatever document you're gonna raise the equity under. Everything's complete there, 30 to 45 days, another 30 to 45 days to raise the equity. And you guys primarily would go design build, GMP, what do you guys usually do in the contract? GMP. Great. So here's a big guy from construction sitting to the right of me. 
So what am I going to talk about construction? But when we develop from beginning to end, because we are primarily a HUD developer, regular rate, multifamily, takes about a year or so. And on acquisition side, from beginning to end, probably 60 to 90 days, because the sellers are now very sensitive. They don't give you enough time. So everything has to be rushed. So on development side, about a year. On acquisition side, about 60 to 90 days. Great. Yeah, for us, it's generally about 90 days. We go into deals knowing what the strategy is going to be and what problem we're looking to solve even beforehand. So we usually have our investors up front knowing who's going to be able to lead. Um, but it still takes about 90 days to make sure we round up the right strategics in that, in that particular startup. Great. It depends on the deal. Sometimes you find a deal and you know what the structure is going to be. It can take you three days because you're talking to your investor base before you even sign a contract. So again, it depends on, on the deal particulars. With the last deal we, we did, I think it took three days, really. Wonderful. Okay, so we're gonna open it up for questions. Does anybody have a final statement they would like to put out before we have any questions? My only final statement is that let us not kid ourselves. We need to be very cognizant and be aware where we are in the economic cycle. So even though everything looks great, hunky-dory, stock market going up, all those things, kid you not, we have reached the peak in many areas, in many sectors. Let's not forget this. If I only thing I have to say today, that's one thing I have to say. Let's not feel, oh, I am left out. Let me risk my last penny and make up the money that I lost the time period. This is not the time to bet your last dollar. Whatever you do, be careful with what you do. There are opportunities out there. I'm not pessimistic by any means. Just be very, very, very careful where you go and where you end up. Anybody else? I would say most deals are blown in due diligence. So you really have to make sure you did your homework, you checked under all the rocks, you've reviewed all the financials. And then I would focus again more on what my current return was, how fast am I getting my e equity back through cash flow. And then again, take long enough term debt. Don't take a bridge loan because at least you can ride out the cycle if there's a capital markets event. You're not trying to refinance where you may have to pay down your existing mortgage just to keep the property. I would just like to say, as uh, both of them mentioned, that be cautious on where you put your money, how, uh, where you're investing, and who you're investing with it is very important. That who part, many times, numbers overshadow who you're working with, who you're dealing with. Important is people you're dealing with, because good people, even mediocre project, can become best. Wrong person you're investing with, even the best project will make losses. So remember who you're investing with is very important. Do your due diligence, learn, understand, and uh, do the right thing. And then you will be successful that way. It's very interesting to me how long everybody has to do the deals, unless if they have their deal before it's under contract. Because for me, it's, uh, I don't care about cycles because I just hold them forever. Um, and then it's different with the capital markets. You have the U.S. capital market and then you have the foreign market, which really doesn't care about the U.S. They just want to come in and be safe in the U.S. for whatever reason. But anyways, let's open it up to questions. Who's got one? 
We have geniuses, no questions? Sorry. Yes, sir. So my question is, sorry, um, like some of the most brilliant investors are looking for asynchronous markets. Sam Zell uses U.S. and Brazil. Used to be you could do East Coast, West Coast, that sort of thing. I haven't heard anybody talking about moving to other countries as a sec as because we're peak in the U.S. Anybody looking at that as their investment strategies? I would say the U.S. market is peak. But in one angle you look at it, but there are pockets. If you find right pockets and right locations, it's not necessary that uh, peak matters. If you have right location, again, I insist in right people you're investing with, particularly if you see North Dallas region, it's growing at the cost of the entire US. People are moving in. So if you, Atlanta, you see, uh, those kind of, you have to find the right places to invest into. So I would say US is still the best market in the world to invest into because of the stability of the real estate and uh, maturity of the market and we, we have. No other market provides good investment like US today, according to me. Please, I could be wrong, but... <laughs> no, no, I, I, I think it depends on how much money you got. Just to warn you, we have 45 seconds. We'll go for it. I'll finish in five seconds. If you got more than $10 million, $10 billion, go outside of the US. If you got less than 10 billion, stay in US. And if you want more explanation, come see me afterwards. <laughs> okay, well, thank, oh, yes, please. Okay, this question is uh, Matthew Reed from Pulco Partners. This question is going back to a couple of panels ago. Uh, the lady had mentioned uh, she's an angel investor and she had a client who was renting out blocks of apartments for Airbnb and, you know, doing some arbitrage there. Do any of you feel the blowback from resistance in major metropolitan areas to Airbnb is going to be a problem uh, with this type of business model? For instance, I'm from Honolulu. I had uh, several Airbnbs there myself. And overnight, August 1, they put the kibosh in Honolulu County, which is the whole island of Oahu. And so all the Airbnbs were shut down. They estimated between six and 9,000. And the penalty for advertising is $1,000 to $10,000 a day. And this, uh, the second part of this question is inflated values created by Airbnb in these specific buildings or uh, districts. Do you see that as a problem, uh, inflated property values created by Airbnb that's going to leave a vacuum if a municipality says no more? Thank you. If you don't mind, I promised them that we'd stay on time. So I, didn't, I think you should meet with everybody right after. They'll be outside and do this. And if I were to answer your question, I'm building the only six-star hotel in Venice Beach. We just lost all of the Airbnbs there, which was the biggest in the world, 4,000 units. We have unlimited demand, zero supply, and I love it. My IRRs went up over 80. So please come talk to all of our panelists. Thank you for having us. Great to be here.